it's good to see you guys this morning. Everybody doing well? Enjoyed waking up to the nice frost on your windshields? Okay. Um, as, as I was studying this week, you know, one of the, the dangers of reading like commentaries and getting into different studies and, and kind of going down different rabbit holes and getting into the weeds on some things is that you really wind up not reading about uh, a whole lot of what you intended to read on. And one of them I got, uh, apparently there's a little bit of a new theological debate amongst people that are smarter than me and that's, that, that really specialize in these types of things. But they're saying that there's a possibility, some, some people believe that David, King David, should have actually had a name change in Scripture. And I never, I mean, you know, David, what, what are you, you going to do? You know, it's David. But apparently, I guess in his time of exile, when he was fleeing from King Saul somewhere, maybe one of the caves, David lost his ID, and they're saying that he should now be called Dav. It's just getting, it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse. <laughs> the book of Exodus, <laughs> chapter 25. <laughs> I may have lost him. I may have just lost control of this whole thing right here. We're going to be reading out of Exodus 25.8. We're going to get there here in just a minute. But from this point on, Thomas talked to us last week about Exodus chapter 20, about the Ten Commandments, and brought a little bit of a different perspective to it than maybe what we had considered before, is the approach that the Ten Commandments were giving not, given not as a rules list or a list of do's and don'ts and cans and can'ts and all of those things, but really God gave them out of a desire for His people to draw closer into their relationship with Him. Like he was trying to draw the people. And if we you know, kind of rewind a little bit to where we left off before he mentioned the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 19, we see where God was asking the people of Israel for all to come out into his presence. And they got scared. They were fearful of what was happening in the on the mountain, lightning, thunder, fire, smoke, all of this stuff, these rumblings and these things happening. And God is beckoning them to come to his presence and to be with him. And understandably so, there's a little bit of trepidation there. There's a little bit of fear in them wanting to go and meet with God in these conditions. So we see that God's calling this entire nation, not just Moses. And we've talked about it a couple times. Of God didn't just want one person to be in his presence. God was calling the entire nation to come into his presence. Now we're kind of beginning the third act in the book of Exodus. There's three acts that we have that we can see in this, in this book. The first is the account of their bondage, the Israelites' bondage in Egypt and the birth of Moses and kind of his being raised and, and reared in Egypt and his exile after he murdered the Egyptian. We see that. That's kind of Act 1. Act 2 is when we start seeing the plagues hit and the actual deliverance out of bondage, the exodus itself, and then the kind of the wilderness journey and the trials and the tribulations that they faced getting up until this point that we're at today. And they've kind of settled at Mount Sinai. 
Now, they've not reached their destination, the promised land that God had in store for them, but they're going to be at the base of this mountain for a while, all the way through Numbers chapter 9. They're basically kind of at the base of this mountain here. So they've this is beginning the third act of the book of Exodus. And what I think that we need to do, how many of you have read uh, the account of the tabernacle? Like it's chapters 25 through 30, then we take a little bit of a break, and then we pick it back up a few chapters later, and it finishes the entirety of the book of Exodus. Riveting reading. All right, acacia wood, cubits, all of that page-turning stuff. Yeah, it's right there below the genealogical stuff. You know, the begats and begots of all of those names we can't pronounce? So I understand that this is one of those times that in our Bible reading that we can kind of zone out a little bit because we start seeing all these instructions. And that's what Exodus 25 through 30, that's what God is doing is he has given Moses these instructions on this tabernacle. So he's this tabernacle is this portable tent that they set up as they kind of wander around the base of the mountain and God gives them instructions. This is what we do. This is how you build it. And I'm not going to get a whole lot into uh, the different elements and stuff, but I've got a QR code and a, and a website up here uh, that if you go to the website, this QR code will take you directly to this page. But if you go to uh, fccgrayson.com forward slash tabernacle, there is a lot of information listed here that I'm not going to have the time to go into this morning. So I encourage you uh, to go and, and look at this because there is some really interesting stuff on there. But when we start to look at the tabernacle, just as with the Ten Commandments, let's look at it from a relational standpoint instead of just a list of numbers and instructions. Because what we see in the tabernacle is instead of God continually calling the people into his presence, God says, okay, this isn't working out. Now my presence is going to dwell with them. His people, for so many reasons, were having trouble dwelling in his presence. So he says, okay, what I'm going to do is I want you, Moses, go prepare for me a place so that my presence can dwell with my people. So God's flipping the script here just a little bit. Instead of asking and demanding and beckoning the people to come into his presence, he's like, okay, this isn't working, so I'm now going to reside and I'm going to dwell in their midst. And we'll get to how this affects us a little bit later, but God hasn't stopped doing that. He has not ceased coming and dwelling amongst us. And for you and I, that is an amazing fact that God doesn't wait for us to come to him. He's already come to us. So just a few of the elements that I kind of want to go off of. I've got a map that I'm going to put up here. And I know it's going to be really uh, difficult to see uh, from this stand. Wow, it's really difficult to see. Good. It's good. It's good. There's a map up here. And we're going to test your trust in your preacher this morning. It's made up of three areas, the tabernacle, okay? 
It's got the outer courts, the inner courts, the holy of holies, uh, you know, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place. There, there's different terminology for it. But the elements that we see here on the outside, you got the bronze altar, the 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 place where the sacrifice was made. Um, you've got the uh, bronze basin where you would cleanse, where you would wash. Then you go inside. You've got the seven branch lampstand. You've got the table of showbread. You've got the altar of incense. And then inside, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the presence of God dwelt, okay? Right in that Holy of Holies, that's where the presence of God resided while they were here at the base of the mountain. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of all of these elements, but one theme that we see in all of them is the holiness of God is just how incredibly holy that God is. And you know what that also serves as a reminder of? Since according to Kelly last week, all I do every week is tell us how big a sinners we are. Heard that one too, buddy. And we are. So if these elements remind us of how holy God is, it also kind of reminds us of how holy we are not. Because the high priest was the only one that was allowed to go into this holy of holies, and that was after days of consecration, days of ritual, of purification, of trying to wipe this sin out. And then he went in there with a bell that he continually rang so that people would know that he was still alive. And so much so that if the dude did drop dead in there, they didn't want to have to go in there and get him because they knew that, hey, if he's dead, then I'm going to be dead, and we're just going to have a whole line of people rushing in there and dying, trying to get him out. So they would tie a rope around his ankle, around his leg, that way that if the bell stopped ringing, it's like, yep, he's dead. Just fish him out of there. But what we see is all of these elements that remind us of how holy that God is. How glory, how much the weight of His glory impacts our lives. And we need to understand that whenever we, whenever we go into the presence of God, we need to make sure that we're going there with the right motives. Now, Exodus 25, verse 8. This is going to be the only verse out of this, this chapter, out of this passage that I'm going to read. It says this, and let them make me a sanctuary or a dwelling place that I may dwell in their midst. So this is God giving instruction to Moses on how to prepare a place for him to dwell so that he could be in the midst of his people. If you, if you hear nothing else, that I say this morning, forget the dad joke at the beginning, but understand that God desires you coming to Him. He desires so much to dwell in your heart and to dwell in your life. So much He desires it that He came and that He sacrificed His own life for you. Jesus came and died. That's how much that God desires to dwell with you today. J.T. English is a pastor in Texas, and, and I don't know if he made this word up. I don't know if he heard somebody else make this word up, but I'm, in, I'm a fan of made-up words. 
And he said that he believes that what we see in the tabernacle is God taking the initial step to re-Edenize his creation. That we see elements of the Garden of Eden in the tabernacle. Now we all know that the Garden of Eden was a perfect place. right? That's where he placed Adam and Eve was in Eden, and it was perfect. It was bliss. No toils, no strife, no struggle, no pain, no work, no labor, nothing. It was perfect. But can I tell you the thing that made Eden perfect was the presence of God. It wasn't the fact that you didn't have to work. It wasn't the fact that there wasn't any pain. It wasn't a fact that the weather was always great. It wasn't any of that. What made Eden perfect was the fact that God's presence was there. Because the moment that his presence was removed, perfection left. God is telling Moses, I want you to go and prepare a place of presence. I want you to prepare a place for my presence to dwell among the people. You see, this is, the tabernacle is where Eden and exile came together as one. This is where the people of God were reintroduced to what it meant to have the presence of God dwelling with them. Not just a presence that came and then left, that visited for a while and then departed. This, even though it was contained in an area at this point, this was the first time since the Garden of Eden that God's people were able to say that God dwells with us. We find a harmony in the tabernacle that had not been seen since the Garden of Eden. You know, it's the place, the tabernacle is the place where God's justice and God's mercy live in perfect harmony. God's justice and his mercy lives in perfect harmony in the tabernacle. Now see, that's one of those, this is one of those things that we have a hard time reconciling, right? These things feel total polar opposites to us. Because God's either a God of justice or he's a God of mercy. We have difficulty balancing this and reconciling this. I remember there was one time several years ago, a couple decades ago, that there was a family that we're close to that went, uh, they, they went through having one of their family members murdered. And we would talk, I remember talking to them and preaching and teaching. I remember other pastors talking and preaching and teaching, and they would talk about the mercy of God. And they would so quickly, even in the middle of sermon, stands up and say, but don't forget his justice. Justice has to be done. You see, when we lean on the justice of God's side, then we have a hard time accepting and truly embracing that God is merciful. But when we camp out over here on the mercy of God, then we have difficulty when justice 
and judgment is rendered. But in the tabernacle, you find a place where they live in perfect harmony because God is a God of justice. Amen? He is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. I think it's, it's balanced so brilliantly, and one of those things that I really can't explain with words, but to look at this imagery, how many of you, knowing what you know, that if there were any sins, any residue of sin whatsoever evident in your life, and you walked into the Holy of Holies, you would drop dead. How many of you would sign up to be the first on that list? Like, I am so confident. Oh, none of us, right? So, I mean, there was a fear there. There was God's justice present in that tabernacle. That way the people were going, high priest is right over there. Send him in. There was this sense of justice and the high priest. And you can't tell me he wasn't sweating when he was going in there. You just hope you remembered everything. I mean, I'm confessing sins of when I talk back to my mama at seven years old if I'm going into that place. So we know there's justice in there, but when he goes into the Holy of Holies, you know what the first thing he sees is? It's the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what's seated upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. Even in the most profound, thick atmosphere of justice and judgment, what's the first thing you see? God's mercy. And that hasn't changed today, praise God. That in the, in the times that I deserve judgment and justice, God's wrath and his vengeance the most, when I walk into his presence full of that with a repentant heart, the first thing that I see is God's mercy. And if nothing else should cause us to praise him this morning, that should be it. Because so many times, each and every one of us in our lives have deserved the justice and the judgment, but God has extended mercy. You see, it's that presence, that place of presence where his justice and his mercy live in perfect harmony. And I think that if we lean too much one way or the other in our lives, then we're missing out on an aspect of God's presence in our lives. Guys, can I tell you that, let, let's just boil it down, that there's nothing else that matters. We can, we can side with Solomon and Ecclesiastes that there's nothing, nothing matters under this earth. In this earth, under the sun, there's nothing. It's all meaningless. If we are separated from the presence of God, Psalm 16 tells us that in his presence is the fullness of joy. How many of you like being happy? Okay, let's try this another way. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That actually worked. It worked. So like, like Ronnie talked about before she threw me under the table bus. It's like we're all after these fleeting things, aren't we? Like we'll spend money on trying to find happiness and joy and contentment and peace when all the time 
the joy that our heart longs for is found in one place and is found in one thing, and that is the presence of God. That's it. I say we, we struggle with that because sometimes it's not really tangible for us, right? We, we want to touch it. We want to feel it. We want to see it. We want to hear it. We want to sense it. We want to know that it's there. And that's where our faith comes in. But this is a time that he is moving into dwelling with his people. Church, there's no greater truth than this then the most valuable thing in your life is His presence. The most important thing in your life, especially as a believer, is the presence of God. Most of you have probably all heard this, a saying at least similar to this, that you didn't know that Jesus was all you needed until Jesus was all you had. Now, I'm not, not doom and gloom, not, not operating that type of thing, but I don't know how many of you all are holding your breath for things in this world to get better. But I'm worried if you're holding your breath hoping things are going to get better. I hope you're breathing through your nose or something. But to say that any of us really, truly, have an idea of what it's like to only have the presence of God in our lives or to know what it's really like to have to lean on Him for everything or to still believe in Him through persecution. Folks, I, I don't know this for sure, but I think we at least need to be praying and preparing ourselves that we could become, great, become persecuted far more than what we've ever known in our lives. And to be honest with you, as an Americanized church, we've really not known persecution, period. But to say that we're going to escape that would be foolish. And I don't know, listen, I would love to be able to stand up here and tell you that as your pastor, take everything away, take, put the Job treatment to me, take my health, take my finances, take my family, take everything away from me, and I'm still going to say, blessed, you know, naked came I into this world, naked shall I depart, blessed be the name of the Lord. I would love to tell you, I know 100% that's going to be my reaction, but guess what? I don't. I hope that is. I pray that that is. I, I really want that to be. But I don't think any of us know that for sure, do we? I can promise you one thing, though. Apart from God's presence, that will not be our response. That will not be our response if we do not have the presence of God truly dwelling within us. So this brings us, we're, we're a New Testament church. I get it that Exodus is Old Testament. We're a New Testament church. We're living in New Testament times. I get that. And here's the beauty of it. We live in a greater access to God's presence than even what the Israelites did in the tabernacle. There's no longer a veil that's holding back the presence of God. There's no longer a place that's restricting His presence from dwelling in our lives. And we have one person to thank for that, and that's Jesus. 
through his death, his burial, his resurrection, through the work that he did, you and I now have access to the dwelling presence of God in our hearts. There's a couple passages of scripture I'm going to put up here on the board. First is John chapter 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's talking about Jesus here, and the Word became flesh and dwelt upon us. Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the beautiful part about this is the same word dwell in Exodus 25.8, and the dwell that's used in John, and the dwell that's used in Colossians, are the exact same word. Let that sink in for just a minute. That what God did in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, to come and dwell with His people, His presence in that location, now is accessible to you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. That he came to dwell amongst us. That the, in him the fullness was pleased to dwell. That his presence, his fullness was in Christ Jesus. Kennedy read out of Hebrews chapter 9 a little bit earlier. And if you got a chance, go back and read Hebrews both 9 and 10 because it's talking about this, this tabernacle concept. The next passage that I want to appear on the board is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that every restriction that was placed upon the presence of God dwelling amongst his people in the Old Testament has now been removed and our sins and our conscience are washed clean. How? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that makes his presence a dwelling force that lives inside of us, also called his Holy Spirit, that now does no longer dwell only in a tabernacle, now that does not only dwell on top of a mountain or in a holy of holy place. It dwells in the heart and the life of every blood-bought believer. And we have the confidence that we can draw near because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, this tabernacle, this place of presence that we see in the Old Testament gives us a visual example of a greater reality of what Jesus has done for us. You see, all Scripture points to Jesus. All Scripture 
tells us the good news about the Messiah. Even when it's telling us bad things and how terrible people acted and how terrible we can actually be, it still says that God realizes all of that. But the good news of the gospel is, is that God realizes that. He knows that, but he loves you anyhow. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus so that he didn't have to wait for you to come to him on Sinai. That his presence, his conviction, his Holy Spirit comes to you. There's no amount of finances that's going to truly provide you joy. There's no amount of security that's going to provide you with a lasting joy. There's no relationship. There's no man, there's no woman, there's no child, there's no spouse. There's nothing that's going to provide you the security and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Try as you may. You, you can look skinny, you can look young, you can spend money, you can save up, you can do whatever you want to do, but there's nothing that's going to provide you the joy that comes by being in the presence of God. And I believe that that's what he's crying out for us to hear with our hearts this morning. I want to ask the praise team if they would to come back up to the stage. It's His presence that provides joy. It's His presence that provides peace. It's His presence that provides security. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, just a few days later, there was a wonderful thing that happens called the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came and began to indwell the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ. And that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us today.